the fact of the matter is anybody can claim to be God. And if Jesus claims to be God, our natural response should be, so what? People claim it all the time. They're called insane. But if someone's able to prove that they are God, that changes everything. Welcome to this week's edition of First Person. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Our guest today is a young man who grew up in a devout Muslim home. His name is Nabil Qureshi, and he'll tell his story of seeking Allah but finding Jesus. For more information about our guest, please visit us online at firstpersoninterview.com. In addition to what you'll hear today, there's an archive of all past interviews, including last week's conversation with Dr. Warren Wearsby. Just click on the Listen button for the complete list of programs at firstpersoninterview.com, and you'll also find a schedule of upcoming interviews there at the website. There's a new book telling Nabil Qureshi's story. It's just been released, and I found it to be a compelling account of his journey to faith in Christ. He describes his dramatic journey from Islam to Christianity, complete with friendships, investigations, and supernatural dreams along the way. Nabil and I spoke on the phone, and I asked him about growing up Muslim. Uh, having been um, raised in a Muslim home, um, I came to love Islam at a very early age. My mother and father are both very devout Muslims. My mother actually coming from a family that was a line of Muslim missionaries. Um, my great-grandfather was a Muslim missionary in Uganda, um, where my grandmother was born, and then my grandfather was a missionary in Indonesia, where my mother was born. And so having this line of Muslim missionaries made my family very, very devout in its practice to Islam. And so growing up in the United States, after my parents had immigrated to here, um, not only was it a matter of learning how to live Islam uh, to my utmost, but also how to respond to the Christians around me. So what that looked like was, uh, the first part anyway, was to pray the five daily prayers every single day, to learn the Quran, memorize uh, sections, and, and to recite it during the five daily prayers. So by the age of five, I had the last seven chapters of the Quran memorized. Um, and then to uh, practice Islam uh, as much as possible, but also at the same time to respond to Christians. Um, we knew that we were in a Christian nation. Muslims from the Middle East and, and from places like Pakistan and India believe that everyone in America is pretty much a Christian. Either you're a Jew or you're a Christian. That's, those are the two options. And um, so in order to practice Islam properly, we had to be equipped to defend ourselves from the Christians who might ask us questions. And so from a very young age, I was taught how to challenge basic Christian principles, like, did Jesus claim to be God? I would ask a Christian, if they were inclined to have such a conversation, did Jesus claim to be God? How could he have if he called the Father God? If he worships God, how could he himself be God? Uh, simple questions like this growing up, and I realized that the average Christian had no idea how to respond to these basic questions. Yeah, let um, me ask you about that, because growing up in the home you grew up in now, you know, many people listening grew up in Christian homes, but even in Christian homes, there wasn't the kind of training and the, and, the, and the level of devotion that you describe that your parents had toward the Muslim faith and wanting to make sure that they instilled that deeply into you. That I think that is even strange to, to Christians who grew up in, in their faith. Well, absolutely. It has to do with growing up somewhere where you see everyone around you as pretty much uh, opposed to your faith. Um, Muslims 
in the in the West are actually a lot more apologetically trained uh, than Muslims in the rest of the world because they have to defend their faith. And so, yes, my parents were devout, but uh, a lot of it was amplified by the fact that we were surrounded by Christians. So, as a young child, uh, you were taught these prayers, and uh, in the book you describe, you know, your mother and father would uh, quiz you and your sister and uh, ask you questions all the time to test about what you knew about your faith. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, that's pretty much normal in the West, again. You have uh, parents who are teaching their children basic Islamic principles, and um, by, by orally passing on the tradition, they're ensuring the devout upbringing of the next generation. Well, you were so young when this began. I mean, really, from the time you were born on, your parents uh, took this approach with you. So what was your attitude toward Christians? Uh, Generally speaking, uh, I and the Muslims around me saw Christians as misguided and Um, ill-informed. We saw most Christians as polytheists because uh, they weren't able to explain the Trinity. So we would ask a simple question about how can God be three in one and one in three? It makes no sense. Uh, if the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father, yet they're both God, that's multiple gods. Um, and the average Christian was simply not equipped to answer the question. Um, so uh, when, we, when we realized that, uh, I was told that first, and then I tested it and realized it was true, that people had no explanation for the Trinity, uh, when I realized that, I, I saw most Christians as either ill-informed or uh, polytheist. Hmm. Well, this training in being a Muslim apologist sent you off down the road of asking incredible questions and incredible debates, and we'll get into that part of the story. But how old were you when you kind of tested the existence of God? Tell me about that experience. Well, this was a um, a powerful thing. I mean, I had obviously been raised in a Muslim home, and we assumed the existence of God. We prayed to God all the time, so it was a part of our daily lives. Um, but I would say even the average person who's been raised in that kind of a tradition uh, and believes in God firmly would probably believe in Him, say, 99% surety, 99.9% assurity. Very few people are ready to say 100%. There's always a little room for doubt. Uh, in my case, that last vestige of doubt was eliminated um, when I was 15 years old. I actually was um, in uh, a conference in the U.K. I had lived in the U.K. when I was a child, and we had come back to the U.K. to attend a conference. And I really wanted to see my friends uh, that I had had from childhood, but I had no idea if they were there. And so I simply asked God to show me uh, if my friends were there. And when I prayed that simple prayer, uh, God manifested before my eyes um, two stripes in the sky that pointed me in the direction of where my friends were. And no, you, you, weren't, you weren't considering anything about Christianity at this point. You were just simply asking the question, does God exist as a Muslim? Uh, c- correct. At that point, I was um, going back to the fundamental um, components of my belief. I, I wanted to make sure that I had uh, a solid foundation for everything I believed in, and God was the fundamental component. Hmm. So, y- your parents sheltered you. Um, tell me about uh, what, what life was like as a child uh, in this almost bunker mentality that you're, you're living in America for the most part, but you are Muslim, and your parents really didn't want to expose you to, to uh, people outside the faith, did they? 
Well, that's correct to a degree. Um, we definitely had a very um, well-defended position. Uh, we, my parents had constantly taught me what to think, um, but they weren't afraid. They weren't afraid of what Christians might say. They, they didn't think that there was any argument. They honestly believed that there was no argument that could stand up to Islam. And so they weren't afraid to have me engage others in these religious matters. So as a child, your, your parents didn't discourage interaction, and yet uh, they, well, they wanted to keep you close to themselves, didn't they? Right, and so they would share their views with me, and they gave me reasons to believe in Islam from the get-go. But at the same time, they did encourage me to engage in dialogue with people because they honestly believed Islam was the truth. And so they weren't afraid of anything else uh, derailing me from Islam. And so I had conversations with pretty much anyone and everyone who was open to talking about matters of religion. Hmm. And Islam was the truth. All right. So when it's time to go off to college, talk to me about what that was like. And you still were living at home at that point. That's correct. My uh, parents didn't want me to go too far from home. This is common for, for Indian Pakistani subcultures. The eldest son usually stays close to the home. And so um, I just went to the local university, Old Dominion University, um, that had a good reputation. And it was there that I began engaging one young man in particular who had actually studied these matters a lot more closely than the average Christian. Were you looking for a debate about it, or did it just sort of happen? Well, I saw him reading his Bible, and he was the first person I ever saw reading his Bible in his free time. Um, I mean, I hadn't even heard of anyone doing that. And so to me, it was very, uh, for one, comical, because I thought it was funny anyone still believed in the reliability of the Bible. Um, but it was also uh, an opportunity to, to share Islam. You weren't offended that he was reading his Bible? No, I wasn't offended at all. I was actually, I was actually thinking to myself, well, here's someone who honestly believes what he says he does. Uh, how long did that friendship go before you ultimately came to the truth? I would say that we started talking about Christianity in August of 2001, and I became a Christian in August of 2005. Okay, so four years of debate, of conversations, of point-counterpoint, and uh, you didn't—did you know where that was leading, or, I mean, you were still defending your Muslim faith, right? Well, at first, it wasn't even an investigation of Islam. I was uh, attacking the Christian position on the Bible, on the reliability um, and canonicity of the Bible, also on Jesus' deity, on the Trinity, on the idea that uh, Jesus can pay for the sins of mankind, on his resurrection. I challenged all the essential components of Christianity before we even looked at Islam. Did you find him to be a worthy opponent, someone who really knew what he was talking about? You know, he did know what he was talking about, and when he didn't, he was more than willing to look things up and get back to me. Um, everyone else I had encountered by then either didn't know or wasn't willing to find out. Um, and so the combination of knowing a good amount plus being willing to study and investigate made all the difference. We'll talk more with our guest today, Nabil Qureshi. His book is Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Next time on First Person, we'll talk with anthropologist Dr. Doug Penoyer. The exciting thing about the 21st century, there's so many opportunities for missionaries in media, uh, just the whole gamut of how the 21st century missionary can present the gospel and proclaim boldly that Christ is Lord. Dr. Penoyer trains young people to understand cultures and take the gospel to the world. 
You'll meet him next time on First Person. My guest on First Person today is Nabil Qureshi, who is the author of his own story, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Nabil is a member of the Ravi Zacharias team now, and uh, I know you just came from a trip overseas, Nabil. It's pretty exciting to know that you are now a follower of Christ, and the the depth of the investigation, if you will, that you went through to, to uh, accept the truth is really a remarkable story. Thank you for writing it. Well, thank you so much. It was an honor and a privilege. So we have you debating during college with this friend named David, and um, it took a, a number of years. Tell me about uh, the dreams that occurred. Uh, did this come towards the, the end of that four-year period? Yeah, so first we investigated Christianity for three years or so before I turned an eye towards Islam. And the investigations of Christianity basically made it so, to where uh, at first, I didn't believe Christianity was even possibly true. And then when I saw the evidence and the reliability of the Bible and also beginning to learn about the historical um, probability that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and claimed to be God, I began to see that the case for Christianity could be built pretty strongly. It was at that point that I still believed Islam was true uh, because I didn't think it had any chinks in its armor. But my friend David said, Nabil, we've been discussing Christianity critically for three years now. We should discuss Islam with an equal um, critical eye, and I agreed with him. I, I said that that would be the consistent route to go. But when I started doing that, I realized that virtually all the criticisms I had lodged to Christianity would apply much more strongly towards Islam. Interesting. Um, and that's when I began to realize that I needed to seek God directly for his guidance. Yeah. You know, I heard you speak through a recording of your testimony before I read your book. And as I listened to you speak, I thought, this sounds like a young Josh McDowell, <laughs> because <laughs> your your evidence, if you will, was on the, uh, the accuracy of the Bible, on the reliability of Scripture, on the proof of the resurrection. Those were all questions that you had to settle, weren't they? Absolutely, and those are prerequisites. I mean, the the issue of the Bible. Uh, what I wanted to ascertain um, was the was whether it was historically reliable and to what degree. Um, I would say that Josh McDowell aims for a much higher standard on the reliability of the Bible than I did at the time. I just wanted to know if I could rely on uh, the components where Jesus says he is God, um, and whether he died on the cross and rose from the dead. If that was good enough. Um, then the whole rest of the case would fall into place. So that was my focus. So what was the key about the resurrection that really began to get you thinking? Well, the fact of the matter is anybody can claim to be God. Um, And if Jesus claimed to be God, our natural response should be, so what? People claim it all the time. They're called insane. (laughs) Um, But if someone's able to prove that they are God, that changes everything. And when Jesus is asked, Matthew chapter 12, to show a sign... Um, to prove what he's been saying, the one he says that he will give is the sign of Jonah. In other words, he says, as Jonah was dead for all intents and purposes, um, for three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall I be in the heart of the earth. Jesus is saying that his resurrection is what's going to prove this Christian case. And Paul uh, obviously elaborates on that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that if Christ is not risen, our faith is in vain, and we are of all people most to be pitied. So, the resurrection is the linchpin for Christianity. Uh, it, ri- it rises or falls on that. Hmm. Along the way, 
you had a series of dreams, and I know we're condensing a lot of this story. Our listeners will have to read your book. Um, but you, you had this series of dreams. Now, I've talked to other people about these dreams in the Muslim world for many years, and I've always understood them to be where there's a lack of God's word that God breaks through in these dreams. And yet you had the word. You'd been studying all these issues and these questions and studying uh, both Christianity and Islam. Um, how do you account for the dreams that you had? Well, uh, I think you're right, but I think we should expand the vision um, of, of how the Lord uh, reveals himself to people. Um, I think the Lord will reveal himself to those who ask. Uh, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened. Um, that was the verse I was relying on when I said, God, if you really are the God of Christianity, I need you to tell me. And though I had the Word, though I had the Bible, and though I had plenty of evidence that Christianity was true, I knew uh, that having been raised in a Muslim world, um, in, in a Muslim society anyway, having, been, having seen the world as a Muslim my entire life, that I would be able to justify or rationalize or dismiss all that evidence if it were up to me. But if God himself showed me what was true, um, then I would have to believe him. And so I think the Lord, uh, even to this day, answers people's prayers. Uh, and even if that requires dreams and visions, uh, he will do it. So all the uh, investigative work, for lack of a better word, has been done, and you have these dreams. Where do these dreams lead you to? Well, the first dream um, had me learn more about the Bible, had me learn more about the Old Testament prophets, and also basically opened up my, idea, uh, my eyes to the fact that perhaps God's pointing me to Christianity. The second dream um, was very clear, that if I wanted to um, go to heaven, then I had to accept the invitation to heaven that David had offered me. That was the narrow door, right? That was the dream involving the narrow door. It was a, it was a section right out of the book of Luke, chapter 13, um, that I had never read before. And the, and the Lord gave me a dream where he placed me right into that parable. Yeah, and um, so you and, go to your friend David and ask for an interpretation, and what did he tell you? He just said, read Luke 13. He, he said, this, this dream is so clear, I don't need to interpret it, just read Luke 13. And, and he knew his Bible, so he was able to point me to it, and as soon as I read it, I knew what God was telling me. And then dream three? Dream number three basically showed me that I was on a, on a journey out of, out of Islam, um, and that God had placed me on that journey, and there was nothing that I could do at that point to, to get off that path. Were you apprehensive about what that would mean to your life? Obviously, you had to be, right? Um, I was. Uh, once again, it's one of those things that, you know, you can consciously say, no, it won't bother me, but subconsciously it colors everything. Uh, you see and you think about that I'm going to have to give up my family and my friends, uh, the future I had laid out before me. Uh, if this gospel message is true, it requires everything. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, that changed my world. Early in your uh, journey, I'll call it, your parents were there beside you and, and giving, of course, their point of view, but they, they uh, would actually would attend some of these conversations, wouldn't they? Right. Early on, um, when I still believed that there was no possibility Islam was false and no possibility Christianity was true, I would bring my father along with me, and, and he would dialogue on my behalf or alongside me with some Christians until I began to realize that he was missing some very key points. He was uh, ignoring some evidence, or he wasn't uh, assimilating the data, and uh, it became clear to me that if I was going to move forward in finding 
the true nature of the way things were, whether it was Islam or Christianity, I had to move past basically leaning on my parents. They must have began to suspect that your mind was turning towards Christ. Um, they say they did not, actually. Um, they say that when I became a Christian, it blindsided them. Hmm. Um, so once you sat down and told them of your decision to accept Christ, tell me about that conversation with your parents. It had to be very painful. <laughs> well, um, it, it didn't happen the way it should have happened. Um, I basically wanted to get baptized, uh, and my friend David was the one I wanted to baptize me, but he said he wouldn't do it until I told my parents. And so I said to him, no, you're going to baptize me, <laughs> and I'm not going to tell my parents. And he said, fine, I'll baptize you on this date, but I'm going to pray that your parents find out. Um, and that's exactly what happened. Um, basically, after a set of freak coincidences, my parents happened to find out that I had accepted Christ. I didn't tell them. Um, they had come to my apartment, and they found some uh, correspondences there that indicated I had accepted Christ while I wasn't at the apartment. And... Uh, so I'm still sad to this day I didn't get to break it to them in, in a much more positive manner. Hmm. Um, but I think I would have taken much longer were I to. It was just too painful to do. And so they already knew by the time I walked in the door. And uh, wow. there, were no, there were no words that were shared uh, apart, from, apart from one very painful sentence that my, my father spoke. There were no words. Hmm. Did they disown you in a sense? No. Um, they tried to win me back to Islam. I mean, for, for the, immediately there was a very difficult time of them trying to reconcile what had just happened because you know, I, was, I was not just a Muslim son. I was one who was devoutly Muslim and very proud of Islam. So they tried to figure out what happened, and uh, they tried to win me back to Islam. But when they realized that wasn't going to happen, um, then there was some, some tension in the relationship to where ultimately, for a good long while, they didn't speak to me at all. Um, but thankfully, we're past that, and we're at a better point now than we have been. Well, we'll pray for your dear parents, Nabil. I was so touched in your book uh, when I read your dedication. Do you happen to have a copy of that in front of you? I do. Would you mind reading the dedication to your book? This book is dedicated to my parents. Ami and Abba, your undying love for me, even when you feel I have sinned against you, is second only to God's love for his children. I pray you will one day realize his love is truly unconditional, that he has offered forgiveness to us all. On that day, I pray that you would accept his redemption so we might be a family once again. I love you with all my heart. I believe Nabil is someone whom I feel God will use in a mighty way to proclaim the truth of Christianity in his generation. Keep your eye on this young man and pray for him and also pray for his family who remain committed Muslims that they would find the peace of Christ. Nabil is now a speaker with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. He holds an MD from Eastern Virginia Medical School, an MA in Christian Apologetics from Biola University, and an MA in Religion from Duke University. If you joined us in the middle of today's conversation, you may go online to firstpersoninterview.com and listen from the beginning. All of our first-person interviews are available both on our website, firstpersoninterview.com, and on iTunes as a downloadable podcast. And if you'd like to comment on today's program, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. That's facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. When you join us next week, you'll meet Biola University Dean, Dr. Doug Penoyer, who grew up in the jungles of the Philippines. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard, inviting you back next time 
for first person. 